so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Well, in today's episode, I'm joined by Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, the China reporter for Axios. And we talk about the Chinese Communist Party, the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing, and the state of global affairs. Bethany leads the weekly Axios China newsletter and covers China's role in the world. She was previously a staff editor and contributing reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine, where she wrote about investigations, deeply reported narratives, and analysis related to China. She's also in the process of writing a new book on China for HarperCollins entitled Beijing Rules, Capitalism, the Coronavirus, and China's Quest for Global Influence, due to release in the spring of 23. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for joining us on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what started you on this path of kind of researching and focusing and reporting on China? Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. I first went to China in 2004, part of a study abroad program, and really loved my time there. I was at Xiamen, which is um, a city on the coast, kind of a sort of tropical part of southern China. It was just beautiful and really loved the Chinese friends that I made. I thought Chinese language was beautiful and fascinating and the culture and history were interesting. And it really changed the course of my life. I never really looked back. It's just been pretty much China, China ever since. After I graduated from undergrad, I went back. I was in China from 2008 to 2012. And I lived um, in Beijing for one year and Nanjing for one year. And I went back to Xiamen for two years. And then I got a master's in East Asian studies. And then I started the path that I've been on for the past eight years, which is as a journalist based in DC, but focusing on China. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, especially kind of thinking about and studying China, is just the massive influence that China has on all global affairs, not just in kind of the Asian region, but really throughout the West as well. And China has been the topic of uh, global news for a variety of reasons over the last few years, uh, just kind of different issues. Can you help us to understand kind of the recent history of China, especially under President Xi Jinping, and how they became a global kind of dominant superpower? 
Sure. So really that started uh, in the 1980s and then rather more quickly in the 1990s with China's reform and opening as they began to uh, you know, open up economically and culturally and diplomatically to the rest of the world. And after China's accession to the World Trade Organization in 2001, you really saw that take off just enormously quick um, economic development, you know, 10, 12% GDP growth for a while. It held at 8% GDP growth for a long time. And with, uh, you know, certainly economic growth comes a lot more power in a, in a lot of ways. But what we've really seen Xi Jinping do is he has very skillfully located all the areas that China wasn't really taking advantage of the power it could have, of ways that it could use its economic strength and translate that into geopolitical power, diplomatic power, you know, other kinds of strategic power. So Xi Jinping has really focused on that. You know, with his Belt and Road Initiative, it seems that he is, you know, trying to kind of create a China-centric world order for the 21st century through, you know, bringing in countries bilaterally in their relationship with China and, you know, giving them loans and, you know, infrastructure projects and deals, which are good for those countries. But a lot of, there's a lot of strings attached to that, namely supporting China's goals in multilateral institutions, voting for what they want and you know, giving them backing whenever desired. So that's one aspect, that kind of diplomatic push has been really huge. But also we've seen a, a different kind of economic power, a kind of what people are calling, starting to call economic coercion. And that's how China has weaponized access to its markets for political reasons. In some ways, you could say it's somewhat analogous to U.S. sanctions. However, the way that China uses its markets in this way is usually to support its own narrow geopolitical interests. So on, you know, hot button issues like the genocide in Xinjiang or policies in Tibet or the way that it has crushed the democracy movement in Hong Kong or, you know, people who get too close to Taiwan, this kind of thing. You know, you see the Chinese government denying access, usually in a very opaque kind of way for, for those kinds of actions and speech. The Chinese government has also deployed that kind of power for pretty straightforward defense reasons. So for example, back a number of years ago, the South Korean government uh, deployed a U.S. missile defense system called THAAD on South Korean soil. And this is mainly, you know, as part of their self-defense vis-a-vis North Korea, but it also uh, is right next to China. The Chinese government really did not like this and did not want South Korea to deploy that. So then what they did was they basically implemented a bunch of like de facto kinds of economic measures against South Korea, including stopping Chinese tourists from going there, which is a, a big source of revenue in South Korea, um, stopping, um, preventing so K-pop bands from performing in China or even streaming on Chinese music websites. There was a big sort of state-fanned boycott of Lottie, which is a South Korean restaurant chain on whose land that fad system was deployed. So the idea there is that Lottie in the future and other South Korean companies in the future would, or you know, other companies around the world would lobby their own governments not to you know, have you know, U.S. missile facilities. So this, this kind of thing. What's really interesting, though, 
is the way that China acted during the coronavirus. So for someone like me, I have seen these ways that the Chinese Communist Party has politicized a lot of its economic ties for these narrow kind of authoritarian political interests. You know, I've watched them for years doing that more and more, but they've it's been on these kind of niche issues that, you know, sitting over here, if you're like in Brussels or if you're in London or if you're in D.C., seem kind of unfortunate, but not that big of a deal. Like, gosh, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if Hong Kongers could protest freely, but, you know, sucks for them, but we're fine kind of a thing. Um, but I was, I, you know, I always thought this is like, guys, this is how China builds power. This is like pretty serious. What if they were to do this on a bigger issue? So with coronavirus, we saw the Chinese government deploy this exact kind of power for the first time on an issue that literally affects every person in the world, and that was discussion of the origins of the coronavirus. So Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, called for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. And almost immediately, the Chinese government levied a bunch of tariffs on Australian imports into China and you know, very dramatically affected their wine industry and a number of barley, a number of other industries there. So this is that same kind of economic coercion. Yes. Early on, you mentioned a couple of the industries that President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party really leaned upon. Um, what are some of those industries that the Chinese are especially influential in? I know obviously technology is one of those, um, but what are some of the other industries that kind of have global impact or global effects? Well, one of the earliest examples of this, I mean, it's, I really don't know of any other example that dates earlier than 1997, especially in such a major way, was actually Hollywood. So Disney, for example, in 1997, two major films came out that were sympathetic to the Tibetan people. One of them was Seven Years in Tibet with Brad Pitt. And one of them was Kundun, which was a Disney film about the life of the Dalai Lama. And the Chinese government, as a response, didn't allow Disney's Mulan to be shown in China. Uh, that was the punishment for Disney. And then the studio that had produced Seven Years in Tibet, and exactly which studio that was, I can't quite remember. Their movie, like all movies, all of their movies for like years afterwards were kept out of the Chinese market, even if they had nothing to do with China. And that was really a shot off the bow. Uh, and Hollywood really got that lesson. You know, that was, that was the big, like, do not do this kind of moment for Hollywood. And I don't know of any other industry that, that was targeted so early and so dramatically and so effectively because 1997 was the last time that there was a major Hollywood production about Tibet. And there has not been, there have been no big blockbuster films um, that present China in a negative light or you know, cross some kind of obvious red line. And there's been numerous examples of, you know, self-censorship in, in Hollywood. And that's just gotten, you know, more, I would say more and more obvious and more and more extreme, especially under Xi Jinping. And especially now as the Chinese box office is the largest box office in the world, we're seeing so many examples of that. And even also kind of a proactive messaging, not China, I don't want to say pro-China because China's great. I like China, but like pro-CCP kind of messaging. So there was a, let's see, film, I can't remember which one. It was a, an animated one, and it had a map of China in it that flashed onto the screen briefly. 
And that map included the nine dash line in the South China Sea, which is, you know, only the Chinese government recognizes that as this sort of sweeping territorial claim over the South China Sea. It's kind of issues like like that. Um, but, but that's sort of a classic one, kind of an older one. And it's about soft power. I mean, the Chinese government knows how powerful Hollywood is. I mean, for example, think about all the movies during the Cold War that portrayed, uh, you know, the Soviets as the bad guys. It's so ingrained in our psyche that even just hearing like a hint of a Slavic accent and you're like, oh, this must be the villain. And indeed, in many movies, the villains have some sort of vaguely Eastern European or Slavic accent. Or with, you know, with like the war on terror, there were lots and lots of movies about terrorism. And, and so now it's a trope, right, for the, the, the bad guy to be like a Middle Eastern terrorist. Well, we don't have those tropes about you know, the, the Chinese government or the CCP. And uh, I don't necessarily want there to be a lot of those tropes because those tropes can be harmful. But we're, what we're also not going to get from Hollywood, at least, is like a movie like Hotel Rwanda for the Uyghurs. We're not going to get that. If that movie is made, it's not going to be what, be made by a major Hollywood studio. And that's, you know, or even just more nuanced stories about, you know, China that are actually very humanizing, but, but maybe just wouldn't, you know, pass CCP censors. It's really a shame. Uh, but so getting into some, some more current examples, yes, technology, like what's happening now is, is not just that China's markets themselves are so lucrative, which they are, but you know, the Chinese tech scene is actually very vibrant. And their, their, you know, their STEM research and their, you know, their, their science and technology sector is really cutting edge. And, it, you know, with the possibility of leading the world in um, artificial intelligence and quantum computing and some of these emerging technologies, that's a whole other level of influence, right? Um, and that's, you know, that's an explicit policy by the Chinese government. But what that means is that tech companies in the U.S. not only feel that they need to tap the market for revenue, but also that they need they need access. Maybe at some point they're going to want like to do partnerships, or they're going to need you know access to certain forms of technology to do what they're doing. This is you know looming in our in our near future, and what we have seen over and over and over from the Chinese Communist Party is that anytime they have that kind of leverage, they use it for political reasons, and it's far beyond just censorship. I really want to move past that as the type of control and influence that we're talking about. We're talking about shaping behaviors, shaping global standards, shaping how these companies, you know, push their own governments, what they push their own governments, how, you know, how to regulate them and what they allow, um, shaping what's considered acceptable, you know, for, for an American company to do or to be a part of. That's, you know, that, that's what we're looking at. And as, you know, for example, the Chinese tech sector has become so influential, they are trying to, with Chinese government backing, trying to set standards, you know, at, you know, a UN, I forget the name of the agency, but a UN standard setting agency, you know, Huawei puts in tons of, you know, standards uh, applications and things like that. So in that way, you know, the Chinese government is trying to set the global, set global norms for, you know, issues that, that are in themselves harmless, but could at the very least um, greatly give a big advantage to Chinese companies. So a, a, an interesting analogy here would be uh, like 3G. So U.S. companies are the ones who set the standards for 3G, and that gave them 
you know, huge, a huge advantage in the 3G market um, around the world. And like, when was 3G like a thing, like early 2000s or something? And so, you know, US companies were like the largest telecommunications companies in the world, and it gave them an enormous amount of power and, and just was, you know, greatly contributed to American prosperity. And so, you know, the Chinese government and Chinese companies are trying to do that, for example, with 5G, with them being the ones that set, that set the, these very technical standards. That would give Huawei and ZTE and other companies um, a really, you know, it, it would really set them up for like, you know, decades of dominance, um, lots and lots of wealth flowing into, you know, the hands of Chinese elites. And, uh, you know, a difference is that the Chinese government would, would absolutely politicize that power and that excess in a way that the U.S. government never did. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, you mentioned kind of the difference between the CCP and the Chinese people. Um, and that's something that's really important, especially in our work here at the RLC, um, as we are advocating for the Chinese people. We're advocating for various freedoms. We're advocating for economic freedom for uh, to counter China morally. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the Chinese Communist Party, not the Chinese people specifically. And we saw this, especially early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, violence against Asian Americans, violence and kind of uh, epithets toward uh, Chinese citizens and Chinese people. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to draw when we're talking about China. We're not specifically talking about the Chinese people. We're specifically talking about the Chinese Communist Party and the way that they go about global affairs and this dominance on the global stage. I know for all of us over the last few years, we've all been trying to navigate this global COVID-19 pandemic. And even recently, we've seen with the Omicron variant kind of ravaging countries and communities around the world. Can you shed light on how China has handled COVID-19 specifically and kind of their differing approach in many ways to containing the virus um, and caring for the Chinese people? Sure. So I think we all know that in the earliest weeks of you know the coronavirus um, outbreak, there was a really uh, extremely unfortunate for the world cover-up in Wuhan by local and provincial officials, and really preciously weeks were lost because of that cover-up and because of the government restrictions on information. However, after that, by end of January 2020, early February, that was really turned around. And you know, from that time on, the response within China to the coronavirus pandemic was extremely strong. They were able to stop the spread and soon implemented something that's basically called the, uh, the zero COVID policy. So it is what it sounds like, no COVID cases allowed. So that uh, has been accomplished through strict contact tracing and extensive testing and uh, very, very extensive quarantines for people who've been exposed, closing the borders uh, and having like three week, four week long quarantines for people coming in from outside and lockdowns when uh, even just a few cases are detected. So the mass testing thing is something that we never implemented in the US, you know, but testing um, millions of people within a week, um, you know, when you, a few cases are detected in one neighborhood, you know, and they'll test everyone within a week, you know, in, or within a few days of that you know, surrounding neighborhood. And then if any uh, positives are found, then locking them down as well, locking down that whole area as well. And there were a few other countries that were able to also effectively implement that kind of thing. So Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand were um, more or less kind of no COVID places for a while. But what's happened is that with some of the new variants that are more contagious, and especially with Omicron, 
And also, uh, you know, as there has been higher vaccination, making, uh, you know, COVID less deadly and less, less dangerous, uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand and Taiwan have relaxed that to some extent. So China is really the only country in the world that has a no co- a zero COVID policy now. And it's interesting, you know, after China's, uh, after the, you know, the initial cover-up and the initial failures in Wuhan, for a while, you know, Chinese policies seemed really admirable and really good. And, and, and they are. I don't mean that they're not. How many people haven't died in China because of those policies? Uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the very first one of these is life. Just being alive, having a government that can guarantee that people can stay alive, that's, that's great. And, you know, it, it, it demonstrates uh, the, the effectiveness, the effective, you know, governance that's there. However, what we're seeing now with Omicron indicates that there could be a pretty hard landing at some point because Omicron is not stopped by vaccines and especially not Chinese-made vaccines. So it seems like what the Chinese government's plan was is to develop its own homemade RNA vaccine. They they have not uh, really been using Western-made RNA vaccines like Pfizer or whatever, probably for geopolitical reasons. They want to be able to say that they you know they did this themselves. So their, you know, domestic vaccination campaign, which has been very, very successful, um, was using the traditional method um, of a, you know, in, in a, a deactivated virus. But Omicron doesn't really seem stopped by that, and so they're kind of back at square one with a, you know, a population of 1.4 billion with very low, very, very low natural immunity. And it, it seems like what might, you know. The, the the lockdowns they've had to implement to stop small outbreaks of Omicron have been really dramatic. Like in Xi'an, for example, I think it was six weeks of extremely strict lockdown, you know, so strict that people couldn't leave their homes and the government had to distribute food and stuff like that. And I mean, when like, they can't do that forever, you know, they can't do that for the next 20 years. They can't keep their borders closed for the next 20 years, but their vaccines aren't stopping Omicron. And even mRNA vaccines aren't stopping Omicron. So it seems like they're going to have a, a pretty rough landing at some point. So that's sort of where that stands. Yeah, I know there are especially a lot of questions surrounding this zero COVID policy uh, with the Winter Olympic Games starting this week. Um, so especially having a lot of athletes coming in or diplomats coming in, uh, visitors and uh, coming in to watch the games, participate in the games, that's going to be really challenged in some sense. And I know that's a whole nother discussion we could have kind of about the way that China is handling COVID, especially with the Winter Olympics. But with all eyes on Beijing this week as the Winter Games kick off, there are growing concerns about how the CCP controls information flow in and out of the country, especially surrounding, as the as you mentioned earlier, the Uyghur genocide in Xinjiang. Can you give us a little context for China specifically today about the state of surveillance and how that may or may not affect the athletes specifically in the Winter Games? Yeah, so, you know, China's the Chinese government is really building what you can call a, a modern 21st century surveillance state. It's most severe in Xinjiang, but it, it is in the entire country. And we can start with the internet. It's not just on, on the internet, but you can start there. So 
um, you know, they implement real name registration, so it's a lot harder to hide behind anonymous accounts. Um, local public security bureaus generally have a, a cyber section, so they monitor what's, you know, what what people are saying online and emails and all this kind of web traffic in real time, and can you know can go uh, call in people to talk and arrest people based on what they say or do online. Uh, which, you know, from a crime-fighting perspective is okay. But in China, when there's a ton of political crimes, any kind of speech can potentially be criminal or any kind of, you know, sort of organizing action can be can be criminal. You know, so, I mean, the assumption really is that if you're in China, anything that you're saying or doing online is is being monitored either by a human being or by some kind of algorithm that then will send alerts to, you know, to a real person. You know, and that's, that's going to be whether you're chatting on WeChat, which is like, you know, WhatsApp, it's one of these messaging apps, whether you're talking on the phone, whether you're sending emails, your, you know, bank transactions, um, you know, basically anything increasingly can be monitored. And, and that's enabled in part by, you know, increasingly sophisticated data analysis, uh, since there's not enough human beings to monitor all of that. There's also um, tons of surveillance cameras now just blanketing cities throughout China and facial recognition technology and a growing ability, again, to use big data to analyze what those images are so that it doesn't have to be just people, you know, like security guards staring at camp at, you know, at TVs watching it, but that can be analyzed, you know, by computers so that they can catch, you know, people. There's the sense, you know, now is that it's very difficult to hide anywhere, um, uh, you know, whether or not you should be able to hide or, or not. For the athletes, a growing number of countries, for the Olympic committees um, for individual countries, have advised athletes to bring burner phones and to not use their own devices and to not log into their various personal accounts from Beijing. And that's because, you know, th- with the understanding that that anything that they do uh, will be, you know, will be under scrutiny, will be will be watched. And if they enter in their passwords, if you know, if they any of this kind of stuff, that can be that data can be obtained by the Chinese government and used for who knows what. We don't know. So uh, and I think I think that the I'm trying to recall. I think the Netherlands might even be issuing burner devices for all of their athletes who are going. I'd have to double check that. Interestingly, there was also a report last week about an app that the Chinese government is, I believe, requiring all athletes, all uh, athletes in Beijing um, for the Olympics to download onto their phones. And it's supposed to be in part for contact tracing and health issues. Uh, but there's basically, um, there's, a, there's a backdoor built into it that allows people, if they want to, to, you know, sort of author- cyber authorities to read what would have been encrypted messages. Uh, so that's, that's very concerning. That's, you know, a backdoor like that isn't an accident. It's built in on purpose. Um, so technically, or what, you know, what they say, um, the Chinese government has promised that for athletes in Olympic Village and, you know, using Wi-Fi that's um, around Olympic venues for any, any athlete, you know, who's come in, they'll get, they have a special SIM card issued to them. And that SIM card will allow them to surf the net without these, without restrictions. So it allows them to just sort of automatically, you know, leap the great firewall. So, you know, that's, that's supposed to happen, but there are concerns about what would happen in real life if, you know, an, an athlete on the ground, for example, tweets or posts on Instagram about 
the genocide in Xinjiang? Would the Chinese government try to retaliate against them in any way? Would they put pressure on their sponsors to drop them, for example? Would they actually arrest them? Uh, that seems unlikely. But so there's there's a lot of concerns about surveillance and about and about speech issues. Yeah, I know. I'm glad you bring up kind of the corporate element to this, not only in terms of corporate sponsorships. I know you wrote a piece last fall at Axios talking about uh, the pressure uh, that China is exerting on corporate sponsors not to drop them and not to uh, disassociate with the Winter Games and kind of employing a loyalty test in some sense. But we're also seeing kind of this push and kind of influence on corporations, even organizations across the world, whether it be the NBA, whether it be various technology companies, uh, to have access to the Chinese market. There are certain things you must do. Um, and even what you mentioned earlier, especially with the surveillance state, I know there's a 2017 law, a data privacy law that basically in, set up a backdoor uh, for the CCP to access data full stop. I mean, they have almost unlimited access to any data uh, within China and for uh, surveillance of Chinese citizens, which has raised a lot of concerns, even with uh, some major Western companies like Apple having data centers in China itself. So on one hand, they're talking about kind of a fundamental right of privacy in America. And at the same time, to do business in China, you're unable to have a fundamental right of privacy in some sense because of the power um, and the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. Can you speak a little bit more about kind of this loyalty test that you wrote about last fall and how the Chinese Communist Party has influence over corporations around the world? Sure, I, I can I can do that. Let me first, though, just sort of unpack the term privacy. In, in America, in the West, we talk about privacy in a kind of lazy way. We conflate privacy vis-a-vis corporations and pri- privacy, you know, in terms of the government. So it, whether it's Google mining our data or the U.S. government mining our data, we don't really draw a distinction between that. It's all just privacy issues. But in, in, in you know, according to the Chinese government, they they think about this differently. They have a, a dividing line there. Like the Chinese government has promised to improve consumer privacy, and you could look at that and be like, what? But actually, it's a real thing. They're actually trying to, you know, they just passed the data privacy law. They're trying to have, you know, a a stronger legal environment around what Chinese companies can do, how they can get data, when they're allowed to get data, what kinds of notifications they have to give to consumers, to customers to get their data, what they can do with that data. They're trying to create a stronger legal environment for that. That's real. That's a real thing that's happening. That's improving privacy. However, at the same time, they're doing everything they can to completely erase all barriers at all between any data that exists in the Chinese government. They want, you know, as much data in real time, you know, as possible. So these two very, like, dramatically bifurcated, like, paths on privacy. Regarding pressure that the Chinese government puts on corporate sponsors, so it is almost certainly the case that if a one of the, let's say, top-level, like, 13 or 14 top-level corporate sponsors of the Beijing Olympics were to withdraw... And to say they were doing it because of like human rights concerns, not only would they, you know, lose whatever, you know, why were they sponsoring in the first place? Why do people sponsor the Olympics? Because they get lots of cool advertising and access and you know, whatever reasons people do that. They would lose all of that. But it's almost 
without a doubt, you would see the Chinese government take extensive retaliatory measures against them in the Chinese market. So, you know, all of a sudden their stores might just disappear from like Baidu maps. You know, this happened to H&M last year when H&M said that they were no longer going to be sourcing their cotton from Xinjiang, which is, you know, the cotton industry in Xinjiang is very closely intertwined with Uyghur coerced labor. And when H&M said that, it resulted in a state-fanned consumer boycott in China and also their H&M stores were removed from like Baidu maps. So people like couldn't get there anymore. And whether that was like, you know, Baidu being like, uh-oh, you know, now H&M is bad. We better take it down in case, you know, because we don't want to get in trouble. Or was that like a quiet directive from like a Chinese government agency? I don't know. Uh, again, it's this concept of very opaque and, you know, de facto sanction and not, and not a de jure one. Um, and there were, you know, people were burning, uh, other companies did this too, Nike and Adidas, and people were like burning their Nike shoes. And H&M lost like millions of, like many millions of dollars in the Chinese market last year, just for making a statement that they were no longer going to use Xinjiang cotton. I mean, imagine what would happen if Airbnb said that they were going to stop sponsoring, withdraw their sponsorship of the, of the Olympics, you know, something that the Chinese government has poured so much money into you know, banking on for like prestige and soft power, I, almost almost certainly Airbnb would be immediately kicked out of the Chinese market and never allowed back in. Almost certainly, and that would be you know true for many of these other companies. Or maybe they would start facing you know suddenly all these bureaucratic delays or, or whatever. So it's it's not something they would lose you know lose that sponsorship and that privilege, but it would be just totally devastating for their business. Yeah, I know, especially with all eyes on Beijing this week as the Olympics are starting, one of the things that uh, viewers may notice is not only a difference in the coverage of the Olympics, um, but specifically the diplomatic boycotts that have been uh, that are taking place for countries around the world, including the United States. In your opinion, do you think these boycotts or this rhetoric turnaround, where some are calling these the genocide Olympics, is this actually going to affect China negatively or actually exert any type of influence? So kind of speaking to almost the effectiveness of these boycotts, because they're not full boycotts. Many countries are still sending athletes to Beijing to participate, um, but these are more diplomatic boycotts. Yeah, I think that that every little bit helps. And I, and I definitely think that here's what's going to happen. For every article ever, for all of history from now on, on any list of Olympics that were boycotted, Beijing will be on there. And the reason that it was boycotted will be there. Forever, always. That matters, right? Because there has been this push towards diplomatic boycotts, many governments have had to consider whether or not they will participate. That act of considering means learning about what's happening in Xinjiang. So governments have been forced to learn about what's happening in Xinjiang and to make a decision. That matters. It has greatly increased the prominence and the global discussion around what's happening in Xinjiang, and that matters. So yes, I think that it does make a difference. Is it going to stop the genocide? No. But in a, you know, in the, the global efforts to push back against it, you know, every little tiny action builds up over time. And I've seen that, you know, very directly in the past five years, as every little thing builds on every other little thing. And there, you know, now we have a whole host of sanctions, whereas even just three years ago, we had none. And three years ago, it's that even just getting a sanction seemed impossible because there had 
the last time there was a human rights based sanction on China was in like, you know, like after Tiananmen, it was like 30 years ago. It seemed impossible, but now it's, you know, not only is it possible, the EU created an entirely new human rights sanctions mechanism and used it on China, which this is the EU that they're like, you know, the king of putting their, their head in the sand when it comes to like human rights stuff. So it, it matters. And I'm, I'm glad I I'm optimistic about the fact that there was a diplomatic boycott. Yeah. And I think that's some of the thing that our organization has been pushing for and advocating for and very much supports um, along with our kind of ongoing work, specifically advocating against, obviously, uh, the genocide that's taking place in Xinjiang, but even uh, freedom of speech and uh, freedom of press that you see in Hong Kong and uh, issues surrounding Taiwan. There's just so many issues surrounding kind of China in general that I think for a lot of people, it can be kind of overwhelming. So that's one of the reasons I'm so glad to have you on the podcast this week. Um, is to talk about these things. You, It's been a really fun conversation, and I know listeners might want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, and so th- to that end, I know you're in the process of writing your new book with HarperCollins um, on China. What are some, uh, some resources that you might recommend for listeners if they want to learn more a little bit about the history of China or the progress that China has made or maybe some of the ways that China is interconnected in kind of the global atmosphere? Interesting. Um Let's see. I can recommend so many books. Um, I just got this one right here, I, like yesterday. It's called Red Red Carpet. I know listeners can't see it, but I am holding it up. Um, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. It's by Eric Schwartzel, who's covered ho- Hollywood or the film industry for the Wall Street Journal for like eight years, nine years. Um, I'm really excited to read it. It's it's basically the whole relation, like Hollywood's whole relationship with China over the past like 30 years. I'm very interested in that. There's another book called The War on the Uyghurs by Sean Roberts, who is a professor at, I believe he's at Georgetown. He speaks Uyghur. And it's about, um, the, you know, the Chinese government campaign against the Uyghurs. And what he does in that book that I think is, is very relevant and interesting is he, he demonstrates how the Chinese government's rhetoric about terrorism you know, casting Uyghurs as terrorists and they're required, they have to take all these measures. It draws in great part on the U.S. government's own rhetoric on terrorism after the war on terror and creating the concept of terrorism as the world's worst thing. And all you have to do is just say, well, it's terrorism. And then like everything goes. And the Chinese government has really adopted that kind of ethos in what it's doing in Xinjiang. Let's see. John Pomfret wrote a book called The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, and it's History of U.S.-China Relations, and it's from 1776 to the present. And, you know, it's written by someone who doesn't just care about elite politics, but also care, you know, has spent lots, plenty of years reporting in China, and I think presents a, sort of a good, you know, picture, comprehensive picture of U.S.-China relations. I could keep going, but maybe I should stop at three. <laughs> Uh, Okay, another book I have right here that I just read is by Nathan Law, and he is a an activist in Hong Kong. Well, he was in Hong Kong. Now he's living in exile in London. And his book that's just been published is called Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. And it's based on his experiences fighting for democracy in in Hong Kong, um, how, you know, how the Chinese government basically won that fight so far and what people can can still do to push back. 
Yeah, and two other resources. Um, I, I'm very much looking forward to those for uh, listeners' sake, and we'll make sure to link to all of these in the show notes. Uh, AI Superpowers by Kefu Lee has been a really helpful book, at least for me, um, kind of understanding some of the technological means. Kefu Lee was very involved in Google China over the years, and especially has been really influential in terms of uh, kind of the artificial intelligence debate and a lot of the conversations surrounding that. And then also, I don't know if you've read, Bethany, um, it's a really helpful book by Elizabeth Economy called The Third Revolution, kind of the the rise of Xi Jinping. And she does a really helpful job. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit here on the podcast, a really good job talking about kind of China net and the Great Firewall and some of the technological means of coercion uh, that the Chinese Communist Party has exerted over its people and in many ways people around the world. But yeah, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for listeners to be able to check out. But Bethany, thank you. One, thank you for the work that you do. It's really important. And I know our team, especially myself, we've very much benefited from your hard work reporting and covering China. Um, But I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Digital Public Square. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you really for caring about these issues. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Bethany and learn more about her work, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.